For our time together this morning, we will be in the Gospel according to Mark. We'll be in chapter 1, looking at verses 1 through 13. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to go ahead and grab them and turn there now. Uh, This will be where we will be for our time together this morning. And as you you turn in your Bibles, I have a question I want you to consider this morning. Have you ever needed deliverance? Have you ever needed to be rescued? And what kind of rescue am I talking about? Like, so for example, the past few days, I may or may not have had the stomach bug. And I was like, Lord, let this cup pass, please. Let this be your will. I need deliverance. Or maybe you understand this. Maybe you're having a conversation with a coworker and you're like, Lord, deliver me from this conversation right now. Or maybe you're a student and that final's coming up and you're praying for Christ's return. Hey, Lord, don't let me take this test. That's not the deliverance I have in mind. I want you to consider. I want you in your mind to go back 83 years ago to World War II when the German military was advancing across northern Europe. It moved across Belgium and northern France and the British and French troops. They had nowhere else to go, so they found their way to the last Allied port. They went onto the beaches of Dunkirk hoping and longing for deliverance stuck between the enemy and the sea, hoping that salvation would come. Have you ever found yourself in that kind of situation where you need that kind of deliverance, where if someone doesn't show up, you are not going to make it? Well, in many ways, this marks God's people throughout history. Stuck between the enemy and the sea, longing and looking for God to show up and for God to bring deliverance. And this is basically, in some sense, this is the context of Mark's letter. Israel, in a sense, was exiled by Rome. They were under Roman rule. They were longing for deliverance. They were longing for God's promises to come true. But would it come true? Would salvation come? Would God be faithful to what he said he would do? And would he send a deliverer? And through our our time, through the Gospel of Mark, through these next weeks and months, I would encourage you to have that question kind of pressed in on your mind. How will God deliver his people? How will God deliver his people? That's kind of the main question we'll be seeking to answer this morning as we study and start the Gospel of Mark. So if you have your Bible, look there with me now as I read the first 13 verses. That's what Mark wrote through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, 
the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when He came up out of the water, immediately He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove Him out into the wilderness. And He was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And He was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to Him. So how will God deliver His people? Well, in our passage this morning, I think in two ways. Number one, by God being faithful to His Word. So faithfulness to God's Word and faithfulness of His Son. So God will deliver His people through the faithfulness, being faithful to His Word, as verses 1 through 8, and through the faithfulness of His Son. That's verses 9 through 13. That's my outline for this morning. Let's look at point one right now, faithfulness to His Word. If you look down at verse 1, Mark doesn't introduce himself or give any context for why or who he's writing to. The book actually doesn't list Mark as the author anywhere. But Mark, since the early 2nd century, has been believed to be the author. And this is believed to be Peter's account, or as one guy put it, as Peter's memoirs that Mark was writing on behalf of Peter. Uh, this is the same Mark who's called John Mark in the book of Acts. So in Acts 12, 12, if you were to look and read that, that John's mother, John Mark, his mother had a house in Jerusalem where the disciples met. This is also the same Mark who accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. And he's also the same Mark that calls Paul and Barnabas to disagree and go separate ways. This is that Mark here. Uh, Mark was most likely written in mid-60 AD, uh, and it's believed that this is the earliest gospel that was written. It's very likely that Mark was in Rome with Peter, writing to Christians who were facing persecution under Nero. That's the context that he's writing in. Mark was writing to encourage those who had followed Jesus to say, do not give up, do not lose heart. He who is promised is faithful. Wait on the Lord Jesus, and He will truly deliver you. And in verse 1, Mark lays out the reason for his writing, to tell the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does the gospel mean? It means good news or glad tidings. What is the good news that Mark has to offer? It is Jesus Christ. Amen. That is the good news. Not so much what He's done, that that is true. The good news is that Jesus has come. And that's why he is writing. He comes to share this good news about Jesus. You can say the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now notice something. He kind of gives a couple of qualifiers to the name Jesus. So Jesus' Hebrew name would have been Joshua, which would have been very common in Jesus' day. So there would have been many Jesuses. But Mark writes to say, there's only one Jesus that I want you to focus on. So he gives them the title, Jesus Christ. That's the Messiah, the Anointed One. So if, he's like, you're, if you're confused, again, who this Jesus is, he's the Christ, and he's different than all the other Jesus because he is the Son of God. This is just a random note. When you read your Bible and you see the name Simon Peter or James and John, sons of Zebedee, that's actually affirmation that the Gospels are true because these aren't made-up names. There are a lot of Johns and there were a lot of Peters. 
But those little kind of disambiguators, if you will, are given for us to know these were actual people that we can go to or they could go to and talk to. It only affirms the validity of the New Testament and the Gospels. So we see here, he's saying, I'm talking about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who has come. He is the Messiah. He's the one that God has sent forth. Also, if you see in verse 2, Mark doesn't list out a genealogy. He doesn't talk about Jesus' birth. It's very interesting that Mark starts his gospel not by telling the, the beginning of Jesus in terms of his birth or his genealogy. He goes back to the Old Testament to make sense of who Jesus is and why he's so significant. So, brothers and sisters, this means that we can never untether our New Testament from our Old Testament. All of it is the Word of God. It helps us to understand who God is, who we are, and what He's doing in the world. Jesus was not God's PR plan to come up, come up early and say, okay, look, I, I did some hard things in the Old Testament, and cleaning up with Jesus. That's not true. He came to fulfill what was written in the Old Testament. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, there's not a single sentence in the Bible that is afraid of the light. It is all of God's Word. So if you, if you want to understand your New Testament, just go back and read the Old and vice versa. So here in verse 2 and 3, though Mark gives Isaiah the credit, he says the prophet Isaiah, it's kind of a summary, it's a, an amalgamation of verses. It's three Old Testament scriptures that he's using to talk about Jesus. Again, it's interesting, the beginning of the gospel of, the son, of, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and he goes back to these Old Testament scriptures. If you look beside uh, verse 2, there's a footnote that'll list Malachi 3.1. Malachi 3.1, which says, Behold, I send my messenger... And he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like refiner's fire and the fuller's soap. So here the Lord's coming is not a pleasant sight. The Lord is coming in judgment. But also the wording echoes Exodus 23.20. Which is where Israel is receiving the law. They're at Sinai. And this is what the Lord says. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. So here it's not judgment, but deliverance. And then again, we see, you see another footnote which highlights Isaiah 40, 1 through 3, which God writes, Comfort my people, which Sam read earlier. Comfort my people, says to your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the, the desert, in the desert, a way, a highway for our God. What's the point in Mark listing out all these Old Testament references? Because he is saying that God is faithful to his promises. He is saying that God's word is true. He's saying that Jesus showing up isn't just some random occurrence. It is something that God has been working towards throughout history. God is faithful to his promises. I want you to notice something very interesting that's easy to overlook. Notice in each one of these passages, who do these passages say is coming? God himself. He is saying in each one, in Malachi 3, in Exodus 23, and in Isaiah, that God himself would be coming down. The day that Isaiah and Malachi envisioned where God would come down from the heavens has already come in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
His coming brought both judgment and deliverance. Now, it's partial, correct, right? That Christ will come again where those Old Testament prophecies will be, be brought about in a greater and complete reality. But Jesus has come down, God himself in the flesh, to deliver his people. But the scripture did not only predict that, uh, predict that Jesus would come, there was a forerunner, a prophet that would come before Jesus would come. Who was it? Well, we see here in verse 4, he says, John appeared. So he quotes the Old Testament. He says, someone will come prepare the way. Who is that? Well, John. Now, which John was this? Was this John the sprinkler? John the pedo baptizer? No, it's John the Baptist. Amen? I'm not in the Baptist church. You've got to make a good joke. It's John the Baptist. John came baptizing in the wilderness. What was John's baptism for? Why was he baptizing? That seems like an odd thing to do. Well, in verse 4, it tells us that he was doing it for the repentance and forgiveness of sins. It says that people from all of Judea and Jerusalem were leaving the city to come to the wilderness to the river. That sounds kind of like a second exodus, doesn't it? They left in Egypt to go to the, the Red Sea for deliverance. Now they're leaving their cities and they're coming to the Jordan to acknowledge that they're sinful, that they're wrong. Uh, so here, what we see with John's baptism, it was kind of a preparation. So if you go back to Exodus, when they're on Sinai, when these elders were going to go before the Lord, they had to wash their garments clean as an acknowledgement that they were sinful and they were wrong. So John's baptism was basically saying, prepare yourself for the Lord is coming. Cleanse yourself. So for them to go and do this baptism, they were agreeing they were sinful and they were wrong, and they had sinned against God. They were seeking to prepare themselves to meet their God. Here, repentance literally means to change one's mind. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we're so thankful you're here. You're always welcome at our services. I have a question I want you to consider this morning. When is the last time you actually changed your mind? When's the last time you changed your mind? Well, the people around you who are Christians, we're all people who have agreed we're wrong. We're here because we've changed our mind. Because we were headed towards sin and destruction, and God was merciful to reveal himself to us, and we have changed our mind and said we are no longer following sin and self, but we're following the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this gathering is every Sunday. We're a group of people who were wrong, and we admitted we're wrong. And we've come to the one who is right, the Lord Jesus, to make us right and clean before a holy God. Now, to be clear, John's baptism was not Christian baptism. It's different. You can go back later in Acts 19 where the Apostle Paul encounters disciples at Ephesus. They had not heard of Jesus' baptism. They'd only received John's baptism. He said, that's not what you need. You need Jesus' baptism. As one commentator said, those who needed John's baptism also had need of Jesus' baptism. But those who had Jesus' baptism had no need of John's. Uh, Mark mentions a strange, subtle detail about John. We see it in verse 6. It seems very random. Why would he mention this? It says this, Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. It's very strange clothing, even for today. Um, now, here's something I want the kids to notice. Kids, if you have a kid's Bible or you watch a, a TV show, all those shows are about these kind of characters, these people in the Bible who were kind of like amazing and did strange and interesting things, right? But if you notice that all the people in your kid's Bible... The reason the Lord raised them up was for deliverance. When you think about Samson, this strong man, who had come to deliver his people. You think about Moses, who was raised up in an Egyptian household. Why did God raise him up? Well, he was raised up to come to deliver his people. You think about David and Goliath. What is that story about? 
It's about God being faithful to deliver his people. Think about Elijah and the prophets of Baal. What was God doing there? He was delivering his people. And this here with John the Baptist is an interesting detail, but it's simply God saying, I'm faithful to my promise to deliver my people. That's what it's about. So when you read those stories in your Bible, just remember that God is sending those people out as a faithful person to help deliver those who are in bondage. What's significant about this detail is it echoes Elijah. That's what it sounds like. So 2 Kings 1.8, you can just mark this in your notes and look at it later. They answered him, speaking of Elijah, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, this is Elijah. Okay, why does this matter? Why is Mark trying to make the connection between Elijah and John the Baptist? I want you to flip in your Bible to the very last book of the Old Testament, real quick. Very last book of the Old Testament, which is Malachi. And I want you to look at the last chapter of the Old Testament. Chapter 4. And I want you to look down at verse... Malachi 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. So it's significant here that Mark is mentioning this detail to say, Elijah has come, and his name is John. So prepare yourself for the day of the Lord has come. Brothers and sisters, I'm doing a lot of teaching and trying to connect the old and new, but I do not want you to miss this. What Mark is saying here is that God is faithful to his promises. The way God delivers his people is by doing what he said he would do. He said that he would send a deliverer. He said he would come And he would save his people from their bondage and their sins. So Mark is writing this saying, do not lose heart, you Christians in Rome. You may be going through trial and temptation, but the one who has saved you from your sins will deliver you from that trial and temptation in the days to come. So be faithful even if it costs you your life, because the word of God is true. Christ is God, and he is risen from the dead. And he has come to deliver his people from from their sins. So brothers and sisters, for us, the application is simply this. Do not lose heart. God's word is true. What he said he would do, he will do. So the temptations and trials and afflictions you have now that you're going through, they will stop. Why? Because God has said so. The sorrow and the the suffering that you are experiencing in this life, it will pass because God has said so. And those believers who have preceded us in death, who have crossed the river, one day they will rise because Jesus will say so. God's word is true. And simply here, Mark is saying what has happened is not new. God has promised this long ago. This is not something we've come up with. This is something that God spoke about from ages past. But before we move on, let's understand John's role more fully. We see this in verse 7 and 8. What was he supposed to do? Well, to prepare the way. The way of what? Well, the way of salvation. In the Old Testament, we see that God would always send a messenger before God acted. So God would send a messenger to declare, here's what I'm about to do. It's the kindness of God. And so John is essentially the last Old Testament prophet. He's come to declare and prepare the way of the Lord. What's interesting, John says, hey, don't marvel at me. Don't marvel at what I'm doing. There's one who's coming who's greater than I am. 
one that I'm not even able to stoop down and be a Gentile slave to him. I'm so filthy in his presence, I shouldn't be near him. And then he lists out, basically here in verse 7, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. This is basically Mark's version of he must increase and I must decrease. He's saying he's greater than I. Why is Jesus greater than John? Well, he tells us in verse 8, I baptize with water, which can do no good to you internally and spiritually. So not we're signed, but it can affect no real change in you, but he brings something that will change your life altogether. He comes to clean you finally and fully because he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In this declaration, John is declaring that the promises of Jeremiah 31 and the promises of Ezekiel 37 are coming in Jesus Christ. That he would put a new spirit within us and give us a new heart that can obey God and delight in him fully. So how does God deliver his people? Well, through the faithfulness, through faithfulness to his word. But not only that, God delivers his people through the faithfulness of his son. That's my second point this morning. Through the faithfulness of his son. We're going to see this in particular in verses 9 through 13. Let's look down and read 9 through 11 right now. In those days came from Naz- or in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Notice this, how Mark moves in his letter. He's very quick and very abrupt. He says, "There's one who's coming who's greater than I." And then what does he say? In those days Jesus came. So that's who is greater than John. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven: "You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased." It's interesting we need to know that Jesus comes from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, if Jesus is greater than John, why was Jesus baptized by John? I think for three reasons. Uh, one, it marks the inauguration of Jesus' earthly ministry. He'd been on the earth for 30 years, but his next phase of life was going to be uniquely different. This begins his journey to Jerusalem and the cross. Uh, the, the apostles understood this in Acts 1, when they're looking for a replacement of Judas. What do they say? We need someone who's been with us since the baptism of Jesus until he was taken up from us. So they understood that this was the inauguration of his earthly ministry. As Jesus is stepping into the water, he's basically stepping into his messianic role. Now, the second thing is this. It also shows that Jesus was being submissive to the Father's will. In the gospel account of Matthew, where he's talking about the baptism of Jesus, John's like, I shouldn't be baptizing you. And Jesus says, I'm doing this to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus was the faithful son that Adam and Israel could not be. He's being faithful to the Father's will. And lastly, Jesus was baptized not because he was sinful, but he was identifying with sinful humanity. He was identifying with sinful humanity. As I said earlier, John's baptism represented the fact that God's people were unclean. Their coming forward was a declaration that they agreed with God, they were sinful, and they deserved God's good and right judgment. But Jesus wasn't coming to be made clean. Jesus was coming to make clean. He was coming to cleanse God's people. By coming, Jesus is identifying with humanity. He's saying, hey, these these rituals and these practices that you've been doing, they are of no value in making you right with God. They point to a greater reality, something that's greater to come that can actually cleanse you and make you whole and make you holy, and that is me. Jesus is coming to say that all those Old Testament practices were pointing to him, the one who alone could make them right with God. And Jesus is showing them in his baptism 
how he would absolve their sins and forgive their sins through death and resurrection. We see here Jesus is baptized in verse 10, and then we see immediately, which is one of Mark's favorite words, he says it some 40 times in his gospel, it says immediately the heavens were torn open. The Spirit descends like a dove, and then we hear the Father speaking to the Son. At the very moment of Christ's obedience to the Father's will, the mediator, to be the mediator of Messiah, God literally tears open the heavens. It's interesting, if you go back to Isaiah 64, 1, Isaiah prays, oh, that you would rend the heavens, literally, would you tear the heavens and come down? So in Christ's baptism, in Christ's coming, in Christ's obedience to the Father, he literally tears the heavens open and he comes down. He answers Isaiah's prayer. We see the Spirit descending on Christ like a dove. Though Jesus was God and is God and had the Spirit and was uh, born of the Spirit, uh, he was not becoming something more in this moment. I think this moment is a commissioning of Jesus in his role. Coming of the dove is a commissioning of Jesus in his role. And it's also an identify identification that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the servant that God had promised. I think this is true because God promises in Isaiah 42, 1 about his servant that would come. He says this, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. It's a fulfillment of what God said he would do in Isaiah 42. He will bring forth justice to the nations. It's also a fulfillment what, what God's servant would say, his prophet would say in Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. I think Mark is alluding to the fact that the Spirit coming upon Jesus is the fact that that who was promised, that person in Isaiah has now come in the person of Jesus. He is the deliverer they had longed for and they had hoped for. Now, why does the Spirit descend like a dove? I really don't know. I've read as much as I can. There's much disagreement on what this means. I simply think it means that, it, that a dove is kind of representative of, of gentleness and meekness, which would mark Jesus' ministry. What does Jesus say about himself in Matthew 11? That he is gentle and lowly in heart. And even if you go back to Isaiah 42 that I just read, listen to what God says about his servant. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wit, a wick he will not quench. Shows us the gentleness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, this is Christ's posture towards you. He's not a harsh Savior. He is a gentle Savior. He is able to sympathize with us in our weakness. Not only does the Spirit come upon Christ to commission and identify Him as the Savior of God's people and the servant of God, we hear the Father speaking. The Father declares from the heaven, you are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. At the baptism, Jesus did not become God's Son. It only revealed that He had been God's Son for all eternity. The Father here declares His eternal love for His only begotten Son, and He says with you, I am well pleased. Can you imagine God saying that? That he's well pleased? Do you have harsh thoughts of God today? Do you think he's only disappointed in you? Do you think he's kind of creeping around the corner waiting for you to mess up so he can say, I told you so? Well, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, he is well pleased with you. 
Because we are in Christ, we receive all of Christ's benefits. And He is gentle and loving towards us. He sings over us. He rejoices in us. He complains of nothing in us because of the perfect obedience of His Son. His Son's right status is now applied to us in heaven. And He's making us more and more like His Son. And one day we'll be completely like Him for all eternity. What God says here to Jesus, it echoes what we read earlier in Psalm 2, doesn't it? Now, Ben didn't read it, but it's in Psalm 2, which says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. I think here God is revealing and declaring that Jesus is the promised Davidic king. He is the one who would sit on David's throne forever. So in this passage, there's a lot happening. Not only do we see all three members of the Trinity present, but I think God is declaring that Jesus is the promised Messiah, He is the promised prophet, and He is the promised Davidic King that would come. All the promises of God are truly finding their yes and amen in Jesus. This is the one that Israel had been looking for, had been longing for. Now it's interesting, after all this happens, this feels pretty significant. It feels like the right thing for Jesus to do is go get on a horse, grab a sword, rally the Israelites, go down to Rome, and establish the Israelite kingdom forever. That feels like what should happen, right? I mean, he's the one they've been waiting for. He's the one they've been longing for. But that doesn't happen. If you look down, look down in verse 12. What happens after Jesus' baptism? It says this in those excuse me, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Again, one of Mark's favorite words, immediately, it's a change of scene. What happens? Jesus doesn't go to Rome. He goes to the wilderness. Why the wilderness? What's so significant about the wilderness? I mean, it seems like a mistake. Again, there should be a celebration A coronation. He should tell people what he's done and what he's here to do, but that's not what happened. He's cast out into the wilderness and for 40 days. Does that ring a bell to you if you've read your Bible, read your Old Testament? The wilderness and 40 days, is there some significance to that? We see in in Exodus 24, after God has given the law to Israel, Moses is on Mount Sinai for 40 days. He was up there so long that Israel decided they didn't want to worship God anymore. They would make a God in their own image and, and worship it. We also see Elijah, when he defeated the prophets of Baal, what does he do? He's out in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. In listing these details, Mark is telling us something about Jesus. He's saying that Jesus is like Moses and he's like Elijah, but he's different because he's better. What they said and wrote about was pointing to him. We'll see this more fully in Mark chapter 9 at the Mount of Transfiguration. He's saying that Jesus is altogether different. They were a shadow. He is the substance. He is something they could never be. But why was Jesus driven to the wilderness? What was the whole point of him going out there? Well, if you look down in your Bible, it says, being tempted by Satan. So Jesus goes to the wilderness to confront God's adversary, not the one in Rome who ruled over Israel, but the one who led a rebellion in the Garden of Eden. Satan's name actually means adversary. So Jesus was driven out to confront God's adversary and be confronted by him. 
The rest of the, the, the verse helps make, sit, uh, make sense of kind of how dire the situation was. He's in the wilderness. He's being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals. What does that mean? I think it simply means that Jesus was in actual danger as he was in the wilderness. I think it shows as part of his humanity here. Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully man. And I think that's why he references the angels were ministering to him. He was weak and hungry and weary. And God sent angels to minister to him. Brothers and sisters, when we are in trial and affliction, God will minister to us. And some of the ways he does that is through one another. But Jesus in his humanity was weary and weak, and he sent angels to help strengthen him. Now Mark's account is very short. I would encourage you maybe this afternoon and this week, read Matthew 4 to kind of see his account of the temptation that he experienced in the wilderness. But it's packed full of meaning. Jesus being driven out into the wilderness is communicating what Jesus' whole ministry was going to be about. He had come to confront and undo the works of the devil. He had come to deliver God's people. He had came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for ministry. Jesus' ministry would be marked by suffering and then glory, by affliction and then exaltation, by trial, and then triumph. In Jesus' first coming, he didn't come to rule, but to die. And being cast out into the wilderness, Jesus is like the scapegoat in Leviticus 16, who was cast out into the wilderness for the sake of the people's sins. He had come to be the son that Adam and Israel failed to be. If you notice, it says here in verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him out of the wilderness. Does that remind you of anything? Maybe Genesis 3, 24, after Adam and Eve sinned, what did God do to Adam and Eve? He drove them out of the garden because of their sin. But Christ Jesus was driven out not because of his sin, but to deliver us from our sins. That's what's happening here. It's showing us here is what he's come to do. He has come to defeat the one who brought tyranny in the world. Christ has come to break the curse. He has come to end death once and for all. And he has come to deliver us to God. You can almost imagine Jesus talking to Satan in the wilderness saying, I have come to end the rebellion. I have come to end the curse. And there's nothing you can do about it. Jesus had come to defeat God's enemy. I asked you earlier if you felt like you ever needed deliverance. Ever felt like you were in between the enemy and the sea? And brothers and sisters, before you were in Christ, that is exactly where we were. We were dead in our sins, without any hope, and something worse than the German army was after us. Our sin and hell was coming for us. But praise be to God that he did not leave us dead in our sins. Praise be to God that he sent forth his son to live the life we could never live and to die the death we should have died and be raised from the dead for our justification. The deliverance has come in Jesus. God sent forth his son to bring us to himself so that death would have no claim over our lives. This is what God has done for us in Christ. This is what we'll see throughout all of the gospel. He's come to deliver us If you're here and you're not a Christian, we're so thankful you're here. But you need to know you are still dead in your sins. Your greatest enemy is not 
a different government, or something on social media, or some campaign. Your greatest issue in your life is that you need to be forgiven of your sins. And the only way you can find forgiveness of your sins is through the Lord Jesus Christ. So I would encourage you to turn from your sins and trust in Him today. We'd love to talk with you after service, so we'll be at the back doors. Are there other Christians around who would love to share with you how you can have your sins forgiven and be made right with God? Jesus came to end the rebellion, to deliver us who've been led astray, to bring back that which was lost. Jesus is God's deliverer. He is the snake crusher. He's the death destroyer. And he has come to end all sin and suffering in this world so that we could be made right with God and live with him forever. 83 years ago, uh, the deliverance of those soldiers finally came on Dunkirk. But it was not what they had anticipated and not how they had anticipated. And 2,000 years ago, deliverance has come in the person of Jesus, but it was not at all how we had anticipated. Those disciples who had followed Jesus They thought he was going to be king. They thought that he was going to be the one to restore the kingdom of Israel in that moment. But he would be king. Not by being thrust on a throne, but by by being thrust on a cross. And though for them, their hopes of Jesus being king at his crucifixion died along with him. But little did they know that his humiliation was actually his coronation. His cross would lead to his crown. As one pastor said, when Christ uttered in the judgment hall of Pilate the remarkable words, I am a king, he pronounced a sentiment fraught with unspeakable dignity and power. His enemies might deride his pretensions and express their mockery of his claim by presenting him with a crown of thorns a reed in a purple robe, and nailing him to the cross. But in the eyes of unfallen intelligences, he was a king. A higher power presided over that derisive ceremony and converted it into a real coronation. That crown of thorns was indeed the diadem of empire. That purple robe was the badge of royalty. That fragile reed was the symbol of unbounded power. And that cross, the throne of dominion, which shall never end. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we we do come before you in Jesus' name, rejoicing in the fact that you have sent your deliverer, the one who has come to save us, not from earthly enemies, but from our greatest enemy, sin and death. We thank you that we can come to you with confidence and that one day this salvation will be complete, that what Christ began at his resurrection will be completed when he returns. Father, we do ask that we would be a people who'd be the happiest people in all the world because our sins are forgiven. We pray you'd get great glory for yourself as we live and submit ourselves to your word this week. And we pray for those among us who don't know you, that you'd be gracious to save them, cause them to trust in you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.